With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. So in 2003 and 2004, I was in Iraq for the paper. You know, the war had ended, supposedly. The big reporters, a lot of them, go for the what they thought would be the active phase. And then it slows down and they rotate out. And the Times basically is like any cub reporter, if you want to put your hand up and go, you can go. And so I put my hand up and went. It was bad. So you reached a point where you got scared. Oh, no, 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 no. It was much worse than that. I had a very close call. What was your close call? You know, I don't know. I don't like to talk about it. But, well, but can it, please uh, talk about it? I'm so excited. With prices starting at $1,465, HP workstations enable you to innovate without boundaries, expanding as your workflow grows. Plus, you get free shipping, returns, and customer support 24-7, 365. And right now, you can get an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Get 15% off select HP workstations with Intel Core i5 processor when you go to hp.com slash Altucher and enter code Altucher at checkout. That's hp.com slash Altucher. Enter code Altucher to get 15% off select HP workstations. This special discount is valid through July 31st. Whether you have a small business that is looking to grow or you are established and ready to take the next step, HP's workstations with Intel Core i5 processors are for you. PolicyGenius.com is the place to go to learn about life insurance. Compare quotes from America's top providers and save up to 40% on your policy. If you've been putting off life insurance or want to make sure the insurance you have is right for you, check out PolicyGenius.com today. You can save up to 40% just by comparing policies. The quotes are free, there's no sales pressure, and zero hassle. PolicyGenius.com, it's life insurance for the 21st century. So I'm here with one of my favorite fiction writers, but but there's a lot more interesting about this than just that. Alex Berenson, welcome to the show. James, thanks for having me. So, so Alex, just I just want to do the quick introduction, and then we can start talking about everything. I have like five different directions this can go. You were a journalist for the New York Times. We actually overlapped, not quite overlapped, but you worked at thestreet.com. I later uh, sold a company to thestreet.com. But while you were working at thestreet.com, my old company, this is like 1997, built the website for thestreet.com. Really? Yeah. Did you know Ravi Desai? 
Do you remember him? No. Okay, he was the first CEO. It's sort of a kind of a tra- crazy and somewhat tragic story, but that we can that's a whole that's an offline conversation. You know who I knew back then? Well, I knew um Dan Woods. Uh-huh. So he was the guy who hired me. Uh he was the CTO at the street.com at the time, and I knew Evan Turtle. Um he was in the IT department because okay. he was a very young uh, when he was when we were both young, we were both young chess masters. Huh. So I've known him from that world from when we were kids. Fascinating. So so but it's not what this is about. You then uh started writing thrillers, uh, spy thrillers, which are very topical, which uh, I'll give a little summary, but we could, we're going to dive more into it, which is uh, a guy, John Wells, is, is the subject of your, your 10 uh, novels in this series. And they were all... all uh, were all of them? I know the first one was on the New York Times. Was number they, they, one. On the they, New York Times they've all been on the bestsellers. I, there's actually eleven now, and the eleventh one, which came out in February, was debuted at number eight. So they've all been. Oh, top I thought 10. the prisoner was number ten. That was number eleven. It was number eleven. So I've missed one. I've gotta, I we uh, yes. I've got to figure. The good thing is you can read them out of order. You can, and you do a nice job of kind of catching people up throughout. You know, each book. I hope so. One of the things about writing a series like that, and, and it is hard, is you know, there's a core of readers, and they don't want to hear everything about John Wells's life over and over again. But for new people, the books have to be accessible, so it's a balancing act. And otherwise, I, you lose people yeah, for each one. Like number ten will never sell as num- num- exactly. Much number exactly. Like the, the the threat, it will sort of burn down a little bit, which is a risk in a long running series. And I do feel one thing that's sad is that you know I don't get to describe Wells as much as I used to because because. People know him, you know. So I, I, you know, he's he's tall. He's got brown eyes. He's he's got a little bit of sort of Arab coloring to him. But how many times and how many different ways can I find to say that? Well, we'll we'll talk about this in in a second. Um, I think almost all of your books, right, hit the New York Times bestseller. Or they, they've, all they've, they've all been on the list. Yes. And the first one was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes. And you also won the Edgar Award for best first, first novel. First yes. novel, which is incredible. Uh, uh, the series itself, I just love. You know how I found it? Um, your your f- former co-worker and buddy at the New York Times, Andrew Ross Sorkin, oh, yes. he just recommended it on some feed or list that I'm on. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm looking for a good thriller series, like a page-turning yes. series to read. I'm not always looking for a page-turner. Sometimes I'm looking for other types of books. Yes. But I figured I want to try writing a page-turner. And some page turners are bad because they're just page turners. Yes. And then I started reading yours, and A, the stories were so intricate and complex and topical. Like the main character, John Wells, uh, in the first book, goes undercover with Al Qaeda, converts to Islam, and there's this, oh, he's such a complex character. But then also, you veer off into tangents so well. <laughs> I think this is your particular skill compared to most thrillers I read, where every or most characters, even if they're only going to play very small roles in the book, they'll get this intense and very fascinating backstory. It's like, even if they're a suicide bomber about to blow themselves up, you give them this great and beautiful backstory so that I'm sad when the suicide bomber blows himself up. Yeah, you know, it is the the, the mortality rate among the minor characters in the books is quite high. And, sort of like the red, the red shirts of Star Trek. <laughs> exactly. And and yet, like, I do want those, those people to be real and feel real. And they're in the newest book, in The Prisoner, um, anyway, in The Faithful Spy, there's this horrible, you know, bomb that blows up a bar. Man, so, but you get to know yeah, that kid. That was, and- that was incredible. You really 
do not want that kid. I, I, I feel like it's a spoiler. I don't want to talk too much about the actual plots, but like you, you go into this kid's bar mitzvah preparation and then you describe in such detail. And I want to ask you how you get these details. But you describe in such detail how the, the, the every split the, second the physical of the bomb, of the bomb yeah, yeah. which it's like the bomb itself becomes a character. Yeah. And, and then at the same time, though, you're moving the plot forward, which is hard to do when you go off on these tangents. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about your re you eventually quit the New York Times, which must have been. I don't want to say the New York Times was bad or good, but I think for any writer going from journalism to like, oh, now I can write my dream come true. I can write novels for a living. That must have been incredible. I want to talk about sure. that. I want to talk about constructing a story. I also want to mention, just as a side thing, the way you go off on these tangents, and I don't know if you were inspired by this, reminds me of the novel, the original novel for The Godfather, huh. which... Um, the Mario Puzo. Yeah, yeah, Mary Puzo, where most people have just seen the movie, which is great. You don't really have to read the novel because the movie is so great. But the novel itself goes on like, it's a thousand page novel. It goes on hundred page tangents huh. of minor characters. So developed that he develops these minor characters and you just can't pull yourself out of it, even though it has nothing to do with You're the You're making me want story. to read The Godfather. You got to read The Godfather. All right, so where do we begin? What You're at The New York Times. What makes you start writing... Uh, a novel. So in 2003 and 2004, I was in Iraq for the paper. Not the whole time, but I did. I did do a couple of stints there. And um, and you know, what does it mean you're in Iraq? You so like I was. I was. I was. <laughs> I was a reporter. You know, covering the Times had a bureau, still does in Iraq. Um, and you know, the war had ended supposedly. Supposedly. It, you know, the, 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 the war we're still in 14 the, years later. Exactly. <laughs> but we deposed Saddam, and it was the summer. And you know the. The big reporters, a lot of them, you know, they go for the what they thought would be the active phase, and then you know it's it slows down and they rotate out. And the Times is basically is like any cub reporter, if you want to put your hand up and go, you you, you know, well you can go basically. And so I put my hand up and went. And one, let me let me. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes. Uh, whenever I think about something like that, did you have? Uh, any emotional attachments here that you were leery of leaving, like a girlfriend uh, or family? Or? I, I, I mean, my family didn't want me to go. I had a girlfriend, uh, and I, I, but you know, I wanted to go. I wanted to go. Um, I, I wound up. How long did you know you were going to be going for? Uh, you know, it was a few months. It was going to be a few months, and it was a few months. Um, uh, and so I, um, I. I put my hand up to go, and people said to me, oh, well, you know, the thing is, you'll find out when you get there, it's not that dangerous. War zones in general look much worse from the outside. But, but that's because they had that one totally blocked off area, right? No, it wasn't because of the green zone. It's because of this. Like, think about, New York City's not a good example because New York City's so safe right now, but Chicago, okay? So Chicago, you know, there's tons of murders in Chicago, right? There's, it's a city of three million. There's going to be a thousand murders there this year. Uh, you know, the, every day there's a high-profile act of violence. Nonetheless, 98% of Chicago is safe 99.9% .9 of the time. The violence is largely confined, and even if you're in an area that is violent, most of the time, it's not like there are gun battles running on the streets. There might be a gun battle every week. Now, that's obviously bad and dangerous, but most of the time, it's safe. Okay. So I get there, and I find out that in, in the summer of 2003, going into the fall of 2003, that is actually largely true. There, yes, there are some bombings. Outside of the green zone. All outside of the green zone. The green zone, by the way, being the, the totally protected American area. Control. Exactly. And the Times Bureau was not in the green zone. Okay. The Times Bureau was outside the green zone. 
And we didn't have military protection. We traveled with drivers. We had... Uh, we military had drivers? No, no. It's soft vehicles, our own drivers, our own translators, a couple of whom had pistols, which they carried, which they weren't supposed to, but they did. And you could drive around Baghdad. I drove from Baghdad down to Basra, which was a 250-mile drive. It was fine. I went to Fallujah, unarmored. And Fallujah definitely felt tense at that time. I mean, it definitely was a little bit scary. But there was this moment when an American Apache helicopter destroyed a van filled with kids, and I went to the Fallujah hospital to interview the kids. I mean, it was you know essentially a story about this minor war crime that we'd committed. So, so let me ask but, about that. So, and we'll, I want to hear the rest of the story, but that does sound horrific. Like, and and if my kid was bombed by an invading force, even if they had good uh, purposes, supposedly. I would be pretty that's angry. That's absolutely right. I think it's impossible for Americans to imagine what this feels like. Even though, because we're going in, our intentions are, let's let's just assume they're good. Let's say it's not about oil. It really is about deposing this terrible dictator. We don't speak the language. We're not the same religion. And we're going in heavily armed. Outside the laws of your country, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to kill people. That and there is, were a fair, other than Saddam being like this massive evil dictator, the the... They were a pretty secular country, like with commerce and capitalism and so on. Yeah, you know, it was it was a crappy Middle Eastern country, but it had a ton of oil. People, for the most part, were not starving. It was, and and there was very little crime. The thing about dictatorships is there's very little crime. People want to stay out of the way of the police as much as possible, right? So there's very little street crime there in a country like Iraq. So, you know, God forbid you run across somebody who likes Saddam, you know, and you say the wrong thing, you're in deep trouble. But aside from that, you just keep your head down and you live your life. So, so okay, so I go to Fallujah and I do these various things and then my, my stint ends. And it was a very interesting experience. And coming back to the United States certainly was a, was a culture shock because, you know, the wastefulness of this country really smacks you after you've been away, certainly in a place like that for a while. And so, what do you mean? Like, what's an example? Just, I mean, I think the example that's in the Faithful Spy, and it's the one that struck me, was just the like the electrical grid. Like how, how we take it for granted that uh, yes, the lights go on, the lights go on, and the, and then we use them like mad, and you know, just just like uh, America is a place of abundance. I guess that's a good thing. Better to be rich than poor. But to realize that ninety percent of the world, or you know, maybe it's eighty percent now, is never going to be live in conditions anything like this it, it does sort of smack you in the face how lucky we are and how little we realize that this is related to another guest i've had recently tyler cohen who wrote the complacent class uh and he um he basically says uh, america is living you know fat on the hog i don't know what the expression is but uh do you think we're as a society we're becoming too complacent not dynamic enough i i, I mean that's a real fear i do and I, and you know i, I mean and my politics are complicated and confused and all over the map. I'm a registered independent, but I, I do believe that when the Republicans say, you know, if you give people everything, they're not going to want to work. You know, there's some truth in that. Now, you know, the flip side of that is if you make it, if you make the system so unfair that nobody believes that even hard work can get you ahead, they're not going to want to work either. Right. So that is a, so it's a complicated issue. So did you, so, so you, go, you go to Fallujah, interview these kids, are there, are you interviewing their parents? Their I guess. parents, yes. Are they upset at you? Or uh, yes, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of free floating anger. Yeah. I mean, it was clear that it was clear that 
hanging around Fallujah was a bad, bad idea. And we didn't hang around. We got in, we did the interviews, we left. And that, you know, there were going to be people even in, you know, September, October of 2003 that who were going to kidnap you if, if they could have. Reporters. 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 One of the terrible things, one of the many terrible things that has happened in this war and as a result of this war is that reporters are no longer considered neutrals in any way. Who was the reporter? There was a New York Times reporter, right, who was like famously beheaded. Uh, Daniel Pearl was a yeah, Wall Street right. Journal reporter. A yes. Wall Street Journal. And he was, he was essentially lured kidnapped and beheaded. Yes, that was that was even before. That was in 2001. That was one of the first times that a reporter was actively targeted. But what had happened, and this is, again, so be, so he went into Afghanistan, and I believe, I don't know if it was he found it or another journal reporter found it, but they found a laptop, and they turned it over to the U.S. military because they thought it might have valuable information on it. And, you know, that is definitely part of the reason that he was specifically targeted because... You know, these people had attacked the United States. And so it's very hard for a reporter to maintain objectivity right. under those circumstances. So it's not like it's not like he was going to take the laptop for a news story. He had to return it over to the CIA he, and stop for future attacks. Right. I, I mean, I and may... This was, a, this was in the like the third or fourth book, the John Wells... Or somebody finds a laptop, John Wells works yeah. on that information. Yes. I mean, that I'm using stuff from reality in the books all the time. But I do... So I do go... So anyway, I, I, I come back to the United States and, and I think to myself, well, maybe I'll... Maybe there's a book. Maybe I can write a novel about what I've seen. Now... Well, why... Um, a novel as opposed to nonfiction. So in some ways, this was an act of total hubris because I didn't have the chops to write a nonfiction book. Not that I couldn't have written it like technically, but there were people who'd been covering, you know, Al-Qaeda and Islamic terrorism from before 9-11. You know, there, and certainly there'd been people who'd been on the ground in Iraq the whole time and who were going to be on the ground. I mean, what Dexter Filkins is the most famous. What about a narrative nonfiction where you kind of admit your, your ignorance yeah, and write it from that point? I don't want to admit my ignorance. I'm not interested in that. <laughs> Um, I mean, <laughs> I'm joking, but I'm not totally joking. Like, for me to have done that as a Times reporter would have been sort of crazy and arrogant. So I did something even more arrogant. I decided I'm going to write a novel. Do you think every novelist? I'm I'm always sorry I interrupt so much, mm. but I, I, you say something I get curious. I'm going to ask because this is the last time I ask you. No, no, no. This question. Do you think um, every novelist? has some arrogance. Like, I'm going to oh, write something made up that other people are going to want to read. Are you kidding? Of course. <laughs> it's a crazy endeavor. I'm going to create this world with these fake people, and I want you to believe they're real, and I want to make them come alive for you. Yeah. I mean, it requires... You You can't look too hard at it, or you, you, or you turn to it. stone. That's right. Um, but so... And one thing about reporters is, I think a lot of reporters want to write novels. And there's obviously like, oh... I'm a good writer, this book that I read that sold 2 million copies, I can write better than that. There's some of that, sure. There's also like, I'd like to make a bunch of money doing this, it looks pretty easy. But I, I believe there's an existential reason that doesn't get discussed very much, which is, as a reporter, and this has certainly become tr obvious to everybody in the last year or two, people lie to you all the time. And you have very limited ways to get at them. You're not a prosecutor, you're not a, you know, you're not a police officer, you can't kick a door in, you can't execute a warrant. Most of the time, when people lie to you, they do it basically without consequence. And, and and it seems like investigative reporting is not given its due as much anymore. Like you look at like uh, Watergate in the seventies with Woodward and Bernstein; they obviously knew they were being lied to, but they had the they had the leash to to go after somebody for a year. But yes, well, and also once they proved it, there were consequences. Uh, right now, it seems that you can lie, be caught lying, and there are essentially no consequences at all. So so. 
as a reporter, that's very frustrating. Once, once you get into your 30s and you realize this, that essentially you don't really have that much power, that your power is all refracted. Like if you can get a you know, prosecutor interested in a great story you've written or get the public outrage somehow, which seems impossible now. But in my universe, nobody lies to me. They can lie to each other. They can even lie to themselves. They cannot lie to me, and that is right, a. You mean by your universe, the the, the fictional? John uh, that's Wells exactly universe. right, and that is very cosmically fulfilling somehow. Well, let's let's look at that. Do you, I mean novelists have interesting relationships with their characters? So on the one hand, the characters are all created by your imagination, and some novelists claim they are the characters are so powerful in their imagination that they are the story is often led by the characters tell them what's going to happen next. And other times, there's a psychological view where each character is really another reflection of yourself, male or female, whatever. These are all you, really, just other aspects of you. So, I I'm gonna say both. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, I mean John Wells certainly. As as my wife, who's a psychiatrist, says, he's an ego proje- projection of me. I mean, he's my idealized version of myself. He's not afraid. He's very physically strong and capable. Uh, he's he's so tough. You know, women love him, men fear him, sheep want to be with them. Yeah, he's he's a, he's he, and he's even though he's tortured, you know, because he has committed all this violence over all these years, he's essentially. A good guy with the code. He's addicted a little bit to the adrenaline of the mission. Oh yeah, he's addicted a lot. I mean, and, that's and his he's biggest also an weakness. Outsider. Yes, he, does, he doesn't want to take orders from the boss. That's right, and it and it hurts him. But it, I think I wonder if everybody relates to that. Like, oh. I don't want to take orders from the boss, and I want to have adventures. The the number one reason the book succeed is because people want to be in Wells's head and 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 see what he's going through. Because he's a good guy, he wants to help. But he's going to have adventures, and he's not taking orders. I mean, and, who doesn't want to live that? And somehow he makes money, and ultimately a great living from it. Yes. So all right, it's, it's like the it's like the dream, right? So so he is an ego projection, um, and you know it, it, it's interesting, and not in not so much in the in the prisoner, although he goes and I beat him up so much, and you know one of the things about him is that I I think I think he's I I hurt him. Sometimes because writing the books is physically painful. It's not physically painful. It's mentally painful. So I make him suffer because I'm suffering in the writing. And people don't understand that, by the way, that it's actually hard to write a 400-page book. It's certainly hard to write a good 400-page book. But but even just the physical act of doing it, you have to sit down for a year. And do it and live with it. Yes, it's so true. And, And so... And so towards the end of uh, 12 Days, which was a couple books ago, there was this moment when he, I, he'd broken his ankle uh, jumping off of a ledge. And I was sort of trying to figure out how he was going to like manage to kill this person who he'd been trying to kill for a very long time. And, um, and I, I started to feel like my ankle was hurting. It was That's crazy. Interesting. And and at the same time, I was so exhausted. I was exhausted and in pain for him. And then I was doubly exhausted writing the book. Well, it's almost like, too, for, for the ankle, like why your ankle was hurting, it's almost like you have to do method acting. Yeah, I to, was doing to, some to, of that. To, to make sure, what's he feeling? What's he feeling? So you're constantly putting yourself in his head, How does which he is, of course, your head. Yes, yes. And, and, and it is, you know, one of these days, I'm not going to write a, another Wells novel. I'm not saying I'm not going to kill him. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to kill him. But one of these days, there will be no more 
Wells. It will, it'll have to be. Just creatively, this thing that started with The Faithful Spy is going to run out. But that, but, believe it or not, that's going to hurt me. But I, you've also, I've also heard you talking about that since 2014. And so my guess is, A, you're afraid that people won't like you as much if you switch to something new. And B, you're probably always anxious, what's the next story? I've already given him like 11 stories. Yes. Um, but reinvention's a part of life. Just like you went from the New York Times to writing novels, you've got to go to the next thing at some point. Yes, it's true, but it's scary to do it. Although it, Lee Child never did it with Jack Reacher. No, but Lee, like, Lee's, those books are too successful for him to walk away. Yeah. Like, the thing about me is, like, so it's sort of sad in a way. The first book did the best of all of them. Now, they've all done well, but I want to go back to being number one again. And so, it's pretty clear Wells is not going to be number one. So, so there's... There's, well, well, I don't know, but there's two, there's two directions I want to go, uh, uh, or three. One is, um, A, how do you write a, a thriller story? And you, you kind of mentioned, um, you, you know, real briefly, one element I want to hit on, which is that you beat up Wells a lot. And I think kind of there's an element where in any thriller, the protagonist, in this case, the hero, John Wells, is always at the mercy at some point of an antagonist. Yes. So he's going to get hurt or beat up or yes. James Bond is going to get tortured to within an inch of his life or yeah. whatever. And then we'll talk about story structure and all that and how do you keep the page, how do you make the reader want to keep turning pages. But also I want to talk about, you wrote this first novel, you're still in parallel uh, a, a journalist for the New York Times. I just want to kind of get into the the technical aspects of that. Were you writing in the morning, or when did you write? You were busy uh, all day with a job, and so I would write in the mornings, and sometimes I'd write at night. So I so I so I get home from Iraq in '03, and I decide I'm going to write this book, and I think to myself, you know, I kind of want it to be halfway between uh, Tom Clancy and John Le Carre. And maybe I can draw on some of my experiences. And people always ask, is Wells based on any real person? And the sad truth is, no, Wells is not based on any one person, although I drew on aspects of some of the soldiers I'd seen. And I uh, I wrote a couple chapters of what became The Faithful Spy, showed it to my agent, and she sent it to an editor at the, at Random House named John Carp, really good guy, who's now, he now runs Simon and & Schuster. And, um, and Carp said, this is good. Uh, this is halfway between Tom Clancy and John Le Carre. And I was like, wow, I guess I did actually get to where I wanted to go. So how many Tom Clancy books and how many John Le Carre books did you read in order to kind of feel, okay, I'm going to be able to mimic half of one style, half it, of the other it style? It wasn't mimicking. I, it was just, just like, or in Or be inspired by how many uh, books did you read? You know, I'd read most of the, of the Le Carre. Um, mm -hmm. Clancy, you know, I read The Hunt for Red October, which is one of the great spy novels. Of, you know, probably the maybe the greatest action sort of thriller. Yeah, I feel it's an action novel it, it, rather than a spy it, 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 novel. That's right, that's right. But it really is, and the movie's great too. But, you know, and a, and a couple of the later Clancy books. Now, Clancy, Clancy uh, is definitely became this guy who sort of, he would write these sort of 800-page uh, books filled with military terminology and technology, and that's not where I wanted to go. But in terms of like keeping the pace moving and and keeping readers involved that you know that was what i was looking for and then le carre really is much more about the moral aspects the moral qualms of spying what it means to be in this business where you're compulsively lying to people and and you know and and the idea that the united states in le carre's books is often the villain so so whereas in clancy's books obviously the united states is always heroic so in every way i kind of wanted to be between them you know and um I'm sorry that I, I just everything brings up more questions. Like I still want to get to all the 
things I said I wanted to get to. But you you started this series, like I guess in, the first one came out, I think in 2005. 2006. 2006, you maybe you were writing in 2005. Um, and at that time was kind of the beginning of, let's say, this golden age of television where all the TV shows were, were the stars were actually bad guys. Like yes. The Sopranos, obviously is a bad guy. Breaking Bad yep. is a meth dealer. Even Mad Men, Don Draper is not I, such a great guy. Yes. Uh, so it's like you kind of rode that. Uh, I'm not saying you did it on purpose, but it kind of was this in the zeitgeist. This idea of the anti-hero. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny. When I conceived of the Faithful Spy, I thought of it more of almost as a Western, where Wells is this guy who rides in alone on his horse to save the day, and nobody really trusts him. Nobody really likes him. And maybe he's not even that likable, but he, he there's something he needs to do. Did you think of that as like an archetype you wanted to achieve? I like, did. Like knowing that people would relate to that, they love that archetype? Yes. I mean, that to the and and you know, I'm not like that commercially savvy. I'm really not, and the books demonstrate that in some in some ways we can talk about. But that was the one sort of commercial archetype that I wanted to follow. How did you? What were other archetypes you could you could have considered? Well, you know, you can have the 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 guy whose family is killed, who is bent on revenge. I mean, that's a very common trope in these. I mean, that can take you to a very dark place. So, so basically, um, if you watch every Liam Neeson movie, <laughs> you could create that character. Exactly. I mean, I think the ultimate example of that is that Denzel Washington movie, Dan Man on Fire. Okay, I where seen that he, one. it's you know, it's the same idea. He's he, because that character has nothing left. So when you're when you have it's it's you know it's the it's the Janis Joplin running around right? freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose when you have nothing to lose when you don't care if you live or die when you truly don't care you have incredible freedom because your enemies presumably do care um you know you can have the sort of more of the band of brothers type uh, story where it's it's you know several soldiers working together um you can you can have the Le Carre archetype where which is sort of the little gray man the little spy who, who is in an office in Washington, you know, doing most of the time the way it works is the guy is sort of thrown into the field in one, but th these are not skills that he has. I was not that interested. I like that archetype too. It's a good one. Because that also is an everyman. Yes, that's very much the everyman. The, the problem with that is you then have to explain how this everyman really develops the skills to survive in this very combative environment. If, and also in a world of specialization now, why is a man without skills chosen as opposed to the hundreds of people with skills? Exactly, exactly. So I don't really like that. It, I'll tell you something that really gets to me in, in thrillers is when the hero intentionally puts himself in deep peril and then essentially gets lucky to get out of it. I don't, now listen, Wells makes mistakes and he is often in trouble, but usually it's the result of being outplayed or mistakes that he's made. It's not like, oh, I'm just gonna show up for the meeting with the guy who I know wants to kill me with no gun and not tell anybody and kind of depend on something to fall from the sky to save me. Because in the real world, that gets you killed. Well, and and when that does happen in Wells in the series, you provide him enough incentives, like let's say a million dollars, that he's like, okay, I gotta consider this. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, so he, so, 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 to, I think where we started with this is so back at the beginning of 04, as I'm writing this and I'm thinking about it, I was writing it in the mornings and I was working for the paper. And now at that time, I, um, I didn't, I wasn't married. I didn't have a serious girlfriend. So I just wrote in the mornings. I certainly didn't have kids and it was easier. I could, you know, and I, and, and it was also, it was sort of coming out of me. It was kind of like this. I want to do this. This is sort of, this is important to me. There was this period of time I realized afterwards where I was literally carrying my laptop almost, almost like morning to night. 
Like it was not out of sight. And you know, I went to the paper, so I had a desktop computer there. And, uh, you know, I didn't need to have my laptop with me all the time. But, and I realized I'm carrying this book around. Like that, that's how obvious a metaphor it is. I'm, I'm literally carrying it around with me all the time. And so, uh, so I wrote and then I went back to Iraq and in Iraq in 04 and it, and it was this way from 2004 until 2007, although I did not go back again after 2004, it, for the, one of the few times in history, it was as dangerous as it seemed to be. Mm -hmm. In other words, when you went outside you were taking your life in your hands basically as a matter of course. There was it, no way around it. Is that because there was constant fighting or is it because you were American? Both. Mm -hmm. So so the country so you were a target. You were the country was under enormous pressure. I mean, there were, you know, there were there was a low level, low grade civil war going on for those three years, along with a high grade insurgency, along with just vast criminality. And then on top of that, there were very few Westerners in town, and they all had prices on their heads. Hmm. So that was terrifying. Well, what does that mean? Like, so if if I'm, let's say I was a, uh, ran a laundromat in, in Iraq and I see an American, could I kidnap you and sell you to oh, the oh, insurgency? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it happened. So, and there, you know, there were a couple cases. You you probably, there'd be no reason you'd remember this guy's name, but Nicholas Berg, there was this sort of adventurer, you know, there were these people who were sort of quasi-mentally ill. He went in, he got his head cut off, you know, in a matter of months. I think there were a couple Japanese nationals who went over. They got their heads cut off. Then people sort of got the memo and stopped going. I mean, it happened in Syria too in like 2011, 2012. People, people the, the danger level crept up and people didn't quite realize. Is it you, still happening in Iraq? Uh, well, it's still incredibly dangerous. I mean, at least incredibly dangerous is a little strong. It's still dangerous. Um, uh you know, Baghdad, not so dangerous. Southern Iraq, not so dangerous. There are places that ISIS controls. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember, we, the war, uh, ISIS is still fighting the Kurds for Mosul. Mosul is the second largest city in Iraq. There, there's a war on there. We're just not paying any attention to it. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, so I went back and I, and I had a close call. I mean, everybody has a close call. I had a very close call. What was your close call? You know, I don't, I don't like to talk about it. But, well, but can it, you please uh, talk about it? Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I'll tell you the main reason why I don't like shopping for life insurance. Sales agents. Sometimes they're biased and try to sell you a policy that really just gives them a higher commission instead of giving you the policy that's actually best for you. So I get it. Life insurance could be confusing and time consuming. And if there's ever a payout, you're not even going to be around to spend it but one company is making it a lot easier. PolicyGenius.com is the place to go to learn about life insurance, compare quotes from America's top providers, and save up to 40% on your policy. I just went on their site just to see what kind of policy they'd give me, and even I was impressed, and I'm not usually impressed by these sorts of things. Their site is simple and user-friendly, and it really helps you work out exactly which policy is right for you at the best price. If you have any questions, they have a team of licensed experts waiting to talk you through it. No call waiting, no pressing a ton of buttons to direct your call. You get actual customer service. You know, now that I think about it, Policy Genius is really disrupting the life insurance industry. Also, Policy Genius doesn't just do life insurance. You can get health insurance, insure your pet, or even protect your income, whatever you need. If you've been putting off life insurance or want to make sure that the insurance you have is right for you, Check out policygenius.com today. You can save up to 40% just by comparing policies. 
The quotes are free. There's no sales pressure and zero hassle. PolicyGenius.com. It's life insurance for the 21st century. Shifted into a higher gear. With prices starting at $1,465, HP workstations offer maximum performance through unique technologies, allowing you to go beyond the basics to maximize your productivity and make IT management easy. Plus, HPZ workstations are highly customizable, offering a range of features that you can mix and match to build your ideal configuration. It's the flexibility and functionality you need to easily expand to suit your evolving needs into the future. Not to mention, HP offers free shipping and returns every day, as well as free customer support 24-7, 365. So you can get professional advice and support from the ones who know HP products best anytime. And right now, you can get an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Get 15% off select HP workstations with Intel Core i5 processor when you go to hp.com slash Altature and enter code Altature at checkout. That's hp.com slash Altature, enter code Altature to get 15% off select HP workstations. This special discount is valid through July 31st. Whether you have a small business that is looking to grow or you are established and ready to take the next step, HP's workstations with Intel Core i5 processors are for you. Just tell me on a broad, broadly. Uh, broadly, some people became convinced I was a spy and that was bad. Within, on the insurgency side or? It was in Najaf, which is a Shia city. Mm-hmm. And the Americans had were fighting a... a, a a group called uh, Muqtada Sadr's arm. So Muqtada Sadr is the, le- is the head of the sort of radical Shia insurgency slash political party in Iraq, the Sadr's. His father was a famous cleric. He's a famous cleric. And they had taken over Najaf, which has this very important uh, mosque in it. And the United States decided that they couldn't let Sadr's people control the mosque, that it was going to lead to further violence. And so they went to war basically to against the Sadrist to get the mosque back, which was very tricky because if we'd blown up the mosque, we would have been under attack from both the Shia and the Sunnis. And we really couldn't have taken that. I mean, that that would have led to the collapse of the occupation. We, we, the, we were having enough trouble in Western Iraq with the Sunnis. We could not have gone to war in Southern Iraq. And there was this period in 2004 when it looked like that was going to happen. As badly as things went in Iraq, they could have gone worse. People, people sort of forget that. Um, so anyway, we we actually reached a ceasefire with these people, uh, and they agreed to give up the mosque. I think they didn't want the mosque to get blown up either, and so uh, it was a ceasefire. And the reporters were permitted to go into the area around the mosque. And then through a couple of mistakes that I made that were my own fault, a couple people, not a couple people, people decided that I was a spy. What's one mistake? Just if I'm ever there in the neighborhood, uh, I'll uh, I, found, I found a notebook that a, a fighter had kept, a, a, a Shia fighter. And it was just a tiny little green notebook about, you know, like, I don't know, about two inches by three inches. And, and I took it. it. It was in the rubble of a building and I was carrying it with me. So that was a mistake. Because they thought that you were going to return over to the government. Uh, they, and... they, just, they, they just didn't like, they, 
once it was bad they saw you'd pick it up they no actually I, and so i was dressed like a local mm-hmm. with a with a i had a goatee and you know i had my hair cut shorter and i had a little bit of color but no one was going to be fooled into thinking that i was iraqi i mean no one who really looked at me in a car maybe mm-hmm. but and certainly i didn't speak i didn't speak arabic so the question was like why what are you doing like why do you look like this you're not one of us why are you trying to pass and once that happened it just spiraled so you 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 got you reached a point where you got scared oh no 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 it was much worse than that but i but i don't want to talk about it right, right. so we'll pass on that <laughs> you come back the shia like martyrs okay they like they like martyrdom for themselves and they like martyring other people I, I was pretty close to being martyred. Um, so, so that, and that was a searing experience. All right. Well, then I, one thing I have to ask is just how did you get out of the situation? Did you talk your way out? Did you run away? Uh, essentially, the whale spat me back out. I was, I was taken to some people. I was taken to Sodder's people after the immediate flush, the immediate crowd flush. So I was detained and not in a happy way. Not for very long. This is like, I mean, this is like an hour or two, but but it was bad. And uh, I, the military, Sodder's people. Fortunately, somebody senior heard that we have this guy, and he says he's a journalist, and we think he's a spy, and we're gonna we're gonna do very bad things to him. And somebody with somebody got hold of. Not Sodder himself, because Sodder was not involved, but a, but a senior person, and they went, I think, to the military, and the military was like, "Yeah, yeah, this guy was a journalist." And even though the two sides had been fighting, there was the ceasefire, so the military's word counted. Okay, and they literally waited; they had to wait for this crowd that was begging for my blood to disperse. Like they had to wait for Friday prayers, and then they like walked me back to the American side. Wow, so you're lucky there was a ceasefire happening. So oh, yeah. I mean, if there hadn't been a ceasefire, I wouldn't have been where I was. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'm lucky that somebody heard who heard about what was happening. So, so you had enough experience on the ground in this war and enough riveting experiences that now you have kind of s- stories to at least begin fueling this, this riveting s- thriller series. Yes. I mean, yeah. So, and so then, yeah, so then I just wrote and I saw yeah, that definitely, I mean, that definitely informed the book <laughs> in some, in some way. So, so you wrote the book and I, and I want to, in a little bit, I'm going to, I'm going to rewind to, you know, tell us about the structure of the book. How do you make a bestseller? How do you make a page turning thriller and so on? But, uh, the book comes out, it's a success. You're on the New York Times bestseller list. You win this award, but you wrote a couple of books before you finally transitioned from, uh, having the reporter job plus being a full-time writer. Yes. So when the, so the Faithful Spy came out in 06 and it got good reviews and it, um, it did, it did pretty well. I mean, it was on the bestseller list. It was not number one in hardcover. It was 15, you know, it was on for a couple of weeks. And, and, uh, and then, and I was like, this is good. Like, I'd like to write some more of these. And my agent for some reason was like, Putna, or Random House should have published you better. I mean, I'm even to this day. I'm not sure I agree with her, but she was like, "We're going to switch you to Putnam." Like, they, well, what does it mean? Publish you better? Like, you know, gotten you more publicity, gotten you higher sales, blah blah blah. 
And Putnam, so somehow she went, so she went to Putnam, or she went to Random House because it was a two-book contract, and she said to Random House, he'll write another book for you, but it's not going to be a Wells book. So there, because <laughs> it doesn't say in the contract it has to be. And Random House, for some reason, was like, okay, like, you can go. Maybe they were just tired of me. I don't know. Or maybe they were tired of my agent. Whatever it was, Putnam then picked me up, and Putnam somehow they decided they were going to make this book a big book in paperback. And a couple of things happened. The Wall Street Journal, somebody said in the journal, this is one of the best spy novels ever written. Then it won the Edgar in 2007, uh, which, you know, I mean, the Edgar's not the Pulitzer Prize or anything, you know. But still it, nice. It's still nice. It's still something you put on the book. And Putnam, you know, printed a couple quarter million copies of it in paperback. And one day, I, and put it in every store, which you could still do then. The book business has changed in some ways. It's harder to, it's harder to do what they did now mm-hmm. than I think it was 10 years ago. But one day I woke up uh, in 2008 in February and I was like, oh my God, it's number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Maybe I'm going to be doing this full time. Which is, by the way, kind of exciting because it's not like a lot of times books come out and the initial publicity is so much that it becomes number one. But to have it build through word of mouth and sharing to be number one is a great achievement. Yes. That shows that the book is great. Well, that people like the book. At least well read and getting passed around. And so, so that was 08, and I had already finished the second book. Uh, in fact, they, were, they had just published the second book, The Ghost War, which did pretty well. The third one did pretty well in 2009. And then by 2009, I was like, you know, first of all, I, I, I had a serious girlfriend who I married in 2009, who I actually met another way that John Wells has influenced my life. I met her on the book tour for The Faithful Spy. Um, was back, she a fan or you just kind of ran? No, we met at a hotel, the hotel, the bar of the hotel where I was staying. Uh-huh. She was a, she's a psychiatrist. She lived in, she was a resident at the time in Boston. And, uh, and we met at the, at this hotel. Um, and you say, they say you can't meet your wife in a bar, but uh, I did. Um, and so, so my life was, you know, I, I didn't have as much spare time. And the books were becoming, you know, they'd obviously become more important financially. They'd become more important part of my career. Um, Because now you were getting income from the three books or two books. Three books. books, And, you know, and and you get a bigger contract when you you sell that well. So, uh, and, you know, it was clear to me that Putnam was going to be happy to publish a book a year for the foreseeable future. And so in 2009, I worked halftime for the paper. Um, and got paid half time. They were cool with it. Yes, they were. I, I, they were. Uh, they were pretty much princes throughout this. You know, as this transition was happening. Um, the guy who was who was the business editor. He's now at the L.A. Times. His name's Larry Ingrassia, but really nice guy. Were they ever? Were other reporters ever jealous in the sense that you were living the dream? Like somebody who's a reporter wants to be a writer, but. They, you know, journalism is what pays, but I think they all kind of really want to write novels on on their own. I mean, did ideas. anybody ever say to me, "We're jealous"? Like, no. I, I you know, we're, I'm sure there were people who wished it could have happened to them too. Um, I always, there were good writers, and there were some good novels. Other people wrote good novels at that time who worked for the Times, but nobody, nobody broke out. I mean, I was just fortunate; I broke out. Um, look, I was fortunate and I wrote a good book. So I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, humble brag it too much. Like it was, it is a good book. And but, we'll get to why it's a good book. But, but so, so how did you, your halftime at the paper? I'm halftime at the paper. And by the way, at that time, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who still works at the paper, was taking off big time. Yeah. And Charles Duhigg was taking off. So there were three business reporters who were in some ways treating the paper as a little bit of a platform to do other things. And, you know, I don't know if that was thrilling the other, you know, 55 business reporters. Uh, but 
it was what it was. Like uh, I didn't, I didn't bribe anybody to get the success. It just happened. Right. Um, uh, so wait, what was your last question? So, so, so you're, you're half at the times now. Yeah, yes. And so then in 2010, I was just like, you know what? They want me to work. And, and the times is going through a round of layoffs. Then it's funny. The times times has gone through like four rounds of layoffs since then. Yet the staff is actually bigger now than it was then weirdly. Um, but, uh, and also the paper was changing. The internet, unfortunately, had changed the job of a reporter in ways that were somewhat less fun, right? And unless you really got off on the immediacy of writing and updating and that constant flow, which some people do. You know, I like to have the time to write and to hopefully launch one big story that lands with a big boom and, you know, the, the three months of work turns out to be worth it. But that was, you know, that's not the DNA of the New York Times anymore. It well, can't it's be. Well, it's not the DNA of media anymore, really. It's, it's kind of a rare thing. Exactly. I mean, you know, aside from the New Yorker, who who operates that way, right? So, uh, so there was a round of layoffs coming and I was sort of like, you know what? I can't be working halftime taking somebody's slot if, you know, this is not my real job. And so I said, look, I'll, I'll leave. And they said, you know, and my editor said, he said, basically, if you want to work full time, that's great. Otherwise, I agree with you. You know, basically, you can't have a spot. And and, and it was totally cordial. I mean, mm -hmm. I, it just, it. and it's funny. I thought I was going to really miss the paper and I haven't really missed the paper. I mean, I miss the paper sometimes and there's occasionally stories where I'm like, oh, I wish I were part of that story. That's a great story. Um, and I think obviously what's happened since the election and with the election has energized the times. But, you know, the business reporters, I think, feel pretty, they're sort of outside the game right now, right? I mean, it's so focused on politics. So, yeah. so, uh, so I haven't missed the paper as much as I thought I would in the last seven years. And I've become a, a novelist. That's my identity now. And so, so uh, day one, when you're no longer at the Times and you have to, you know, continue writing your John Wells novel, you were a little scared? Like, this yeah, is a big change. a little bit. Like, I, now you've got to make it really a page turner. This is your life. Well, <laughs> it's like now, you know, people sometimes say, do you wait for inspiration? How does this work? I say, I have a mortgage to pay and I have a contract. You know, I can't wait for inspiration. So you write every day? I Not every day, but most days. And when I'm in the middle of it, if I'm not making good progress, I, I got to get a book done. My book is due, the new one is due June 15th. Now, I have a little bit of a, leeway on that, but I want to get it in by, if not June 15th, certainly the end of June. And I'm on track to do that. But when I'm done with you today, I got to go write. So, so, so let's break it down. The first book you're writing, you, you, you've obviously evolved as a writer during the 10 or 11 books. Now the 12th book's going to, going to, you're writing. Um, what, t what is, what do you think about when you're thinking I need to make uh, a best-selling thriller? That's the goal. Yes. Um, and but at the same time, I wanted to have some depth, some meaning, because that also contributes to the value of the book. It contributes to how what my readers want. Um, but I've got a, the page turner is probably the most important aspect of your thinking. So, so people have to continue turning the page. Well, that is true, but that's true of a literary novel too. If it's if true, you, people don't think of it that way. Right, which is why so many literary novels are boring. Right. Um, now, by the way, we didn't... I, I want to run one question back at you. You brought up that you wanted to write a page-turner. Did you write a page-turner? No, uh, I started... I, 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 this always happens to me. I start, and one day I probably will continue, and I kind of didn't like what I was writing, and so I stopped and figured I'll wait a little while. Interesting. But, but I would say for 20 years this has been happening. I've, I've started and finished, actually, many novels, but I didn't like them. 
have you I let ha- anybody else read them? No. So uh, they might be very good. I, I mean, I've written good nonfiction that has sold well, and I know it's a completely different genre. Um, I, I really am interested in what are the beats of a page turner, of a thriller. Right. So, and, and by the way, I've written also, I've tried to write literary novels, I've tried to write thrillers. They're, I think they are very different. I think literary is a little more introspective, although I appreciate the thriller where it's introspective, like I think in your books, um, and and many other good. I think I think a lot of people put down genre fiction, but I think good genre fiction has all the elements of literary novels, but they're page turners right, too. Right. So the, you have to have a deep uh, character, or else it's no good. That, that's absolutely true. Um, so it's interesting. So 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 you're asking sort of questions about structure, and in some ways, I'm kind of the wrong person to ask about structure a little bit because my books do violate the sort of normal structure of of genre fiction of this kind of book in that Wells is not constantly running across the bad guy. They're not having like little chippy little conversations. Wells is usually a detective in these books as much as a, as much as sort of a soldier, but not, you know, not like, Oh, Dr. Evil, I'm going to get you. No, I'm going to kill you first. Like, I mean, I, I obviously that's the really bad version of that. But if you look at say Lee child, like Lee's antagonists are usually pretty well defined, or you know, Jack Reacher's antagonists are pretty well defined, and he has to sort of move up the chain. Whereas Wells like, move up the chain. No, no, first get, there's the small local bad guy. Yeah. Then there's that guy's boss. Right. And that, that guy's, guy's boss, boss and, so and they're all kind of connected in a way that makes reasonable sense. Whereas Wells, like, I mean, some of the he he never he's never killed a, an innocent person, truly innocent. But you know he kills in the, for example, in the Ghost Run. Never forget he kills a couple of Chinese cops, and he's no choice in the matter. Okay, they stop the car that he's in, and if they arrest him, they're going to take him back. But they are essentially just doing their job. Okay, and he kills them. He he just does. Um, uh, you know, in the very first book, the beginning of the Faithful Spy. He's been living with these jihadis for years, and he shoots them all in the head cold. I mean, and by by the way, just to say, in the first book, what's really fascinating there is he's been undercover for years in Al Qaeda and or with the jihadists, and uh, he's also converted legitimately, sincerely to Islam. Yes. So he's a Muslim. Yes. And at the same time, he's a CIA spy, and you see in that beginning that ultimately he's loyal to the Americans and the CIA because of that scene you just described. But it does set up for an interesting, you know this is going to be an interesting ride because of that juxtaposition. Yes, and you never, and even though he never really wavers, I mean, he wavers. He, he you know, he, he never is like, I'm going to commit a terrorist act. But he does, he certainly has no illusions about the United States anymore. Um, and he has to also kind of pick and choose his points. Yes. Like he has to let some things happen to keep the um, trust of the jihadists. Yes, yes. Um, and so so, uh, so, when I think about structure and beats in a really controlled way, I'm usually thinking of screenplays, which I've written, you know, I've written some screenplays. I've never sold, uh, I've never sold one. I've sold a television pitch and I've worked on a couple TV shows, but I've never, I've never been really successful in Hollywood. But, the screenplays are a very controlled structure. I mean, almost every screenplay has, it's a three-act structure, uh, you know, with a sort of an inciting incident, and then the hero usually has to be convinced to step ahead, step in for whatever reason. He has to be convinced as a key part. Yes. He's, he's a, reluctant. He's reluctant almost always. And then the second act is sort of the meat of it. There's various challenges he overcomes. There's a reversal uh, you know, at some point, and what, then, what do you mean a reversal? Like he, he, uh, towards the end of the second act, it's all going to look lost. You know, the 
he's he's out on the ship and it's only a mile from shore and then the ship sinks and now he has to swim for it or you know i mean it's it's usually some variation on that though mm. um and then then he succeeds you know and finally he overcomes this challenge this 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 structural plot challenge and and we enter the third act and in the third act we realize that really it was earth all along like it was really like the challenge was within him he needed to be a better dad not just to you know blow up the death star like i mean i mean it really is that controlled and contrived so um, okay so let's just take star wars as an example because sure. you brought it up so in the first act luke uh is torn between family and going have having his adventures in space when obi-wan kenobi says you must come with me first he's like i can't do that and then because of events they kill his aunt and uncle He's ultimately persuaded to go out and save the universe. Yes. Second act, he um, saves Princess Leia. That you know, he deals with Han Solo's issues, and the, the problems get worse and worse. Yes. Uh, the third act, would you say it? It begins with him. Uh, you know, it, it has the Death Star blown up yet? At the beginning no, of the not third at act? the beginning of the third act. Like that's the you know that's a, that's the ultimate. Uh, you know, quest. Does right. the ultimate challenge happen in the third act? Yes, yes. Because it, that's when he confronts his inner, I'm going to be really be in the force yes, and solve this problem. Exactly. And until he, until he, you know, is willing to commit, really, he can't succeed. And, and it's, and it's an inner choice as opposed to being led somehow. That's right. That's right. So that, I mean, and there's a reason why Star Wars is, you know, spawned the most successful movie franchise in history. Like that, those, those quests are very, deep in all of us and i mean i think actually i'm lucky in some way i mean lucky may not be the right word but my books in many ways violate those structures they they really do wells rarely wells in some ways the best way to think about him is as an athlete and the season is never really ending he does what he does he doesn't really get any joy out of what of doing what he does he does it because he's very good at it he knows he's very good at it and he believes I mean, he does have a big ego, and he believes that he can do things that other people can't do. So, 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 I would say not to not to assess your own character, but he has this adrenaline rush of being part of a mission, in part because he feels he's the guy to to solve problems, but also he wants to uh, stop bad people from doing things when he's aware of a bad situation. Yes. So he's driven by that. That yes. that provides the meaning. Yes, that provides meaning, and yet he sort of knows. I think it, in one of the books he compares himself to you know the little boy with the finger in his in the dike, right? Like the bad stuff is going to happen, and he has limited ability. All he can do is stop what's right in front of him. But but I think the guys who manipulate him, like let's say the head of the CIA sure, or whatever, Dudo. they know if they just throw a bad situation in front of him and they say, what do we do? He's going to go off. He's going to go running it. off. He can't help. And, you know, and Schaefer, who's, you know, who's his immediate boss, kind of in some ways in some ways almost pities wells because he can't stop himself Sh Schaefer reminds me of like oscar goldman in the six million dollar man <laughs> from the 70s yes <laughs> um but but so 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 i would say that novels and this is a this is an unappreciated fact about novels screenplays can only work movies because they're not they're not screenplays you're not writing a screenplay you're trying to write a movie they have to be successful in dialogue okay and they have the in, it's funny we talked about writing and the physical act of writing and how much writing you need to do to write a book. Screenplay is 120 pages and it's mostly blank pages. Mm -hmm. It's much less writing. When people ask me which is harder to write, I say, look, it's harder to write a screenplay because the form is so confined. 
But a book is more writing. It is just it is just more demanding to but, write a book. But like you said, though, you can take it in any direction. That's, like, like, it seems to me like when you say to yourself, okay, well, there's going to be a suicide bomber. You're gonna Now you're going to spend 10 pages with his backstory. Oh, and what's he blowing up? A bar mitzvah. So now you're going to spend time on it, this backstory. It seems to me there is some conscious choice where you're going to say, every. I'm not going to allow anybody to have a cartoonish backstory. That's, that's exactly right. And what you're, what you're seeing is that a book... My books work because they they get you into this world. They the, the secondary characters are interesting. Wells is interesting. They they are not really dependent on that structure. So and whereas you know somebody somebody like Lee Lee is very mindful of structure. He's going to write short chapters. He's going to end on a cliffhanger almost always. He's going to lead Lee. He's going to lead Jack Reacher up the chain. Jack's probably got a girlfriend at some point in all the books. Um, I'm right, not she, saying, she keeps him a little bit in the town. That's right. So that he goes up the chain. That's right. You know, and, and at some point, probably something bad's going to happen to her that he's going to have to, that's going to make it personal for him. It's very rarely personal for Wells. It's not personal. It's usually about the mission. And so, so like, I don't write to, to form most of the time. Although, if I were to say, I mean, again... You do this interesting thing where the minor characters get backstories, which I really enjoy that part because it's it's compelling and it, it, you don't lose. So I think some writers could potentially lose the page turning aspect when they do that. You don't um, because we know it's all going to tie in in a very interesting way to the main story. I was about to say in a very violent way to the main story, <laughs> but both. we'll let people decide that for themselves. Um, but I say there is some structure in that. It seems like in the beginning, and I don't know if this is the case always, I'm just trying to remember. Uh, in the beginning, he's involved in something bad that he solves. Then it's like a little bit of relief, and then he's given something worse. Yeah. He, he does go up a chain intermixed with his personal dealings. Yes, no, I mean, the, uh, you can't violate structure entirely. He has to have a mission, and within that mission, there have to be submissions. There's no, I mean, otherwise, it's not... It's not going anywhere. So, but, but but and it seems like while he's solving the submissions, you have in the background, you're telling the longer, deeper story of okay, we're about to blow up the that's, universe. That's right. Well, you see what the bad guys story are. That's right. with the bad guys. That's exactly right. I mean, that to that extent, I I do have a, a template that I'm so, following. So so when you start off, you're thinking. I've got John Wells in this personal situation, and I've got this set of bad guys who are going to do X with some c combination of. These twenty These, things, right? Be, this nerve agent, and yes, yeah. right, right. So, so it's like, like you pick that out of the box, but then you have to come up with the submissions that drive him along, um, and they and do they get worse and worse, or like how do you do I it? I mean, it depends. It could be that he, you know, uh, is he going to solve them with violence? Is he going to solve them with guile? Uh, is it going to be some combination? Will he depend on somebody else? Uh, you know, will a clue just drop into his lap? I, at the end of the uh, of the prisoner of the newest book, and I, I don't know if you've read the prisoner yet. I, I, uh, prisoner is like the one I'm at. Okay, so so towards the end, and I don't want to give too much away, but he gets this clue from somebody, and then the prisoner is about him in some ways. And people actually really seem to like the prisoner. I've gotten it's gotten like the highest average Amazon and Goodreads reviews of all of the books. And by the way, I know there are people who claim they don't read that stuff. The authors, I, I do. I'm not going to lie. I, I'm interested to know what people think of what I'm doing. Um, you have to be. You should be. You're writing for an audience, unless it's yeah. a diary. You're writing for an audience, and you should care what the audience thinks. So, so. So he winds up going undercover in a Bulgarian prison where um, 
a senior member of ISIS is being held. And he has to, he has to pretend to be a, an al-Qaeda veteran who's been captured in Afghanistan. And he actually allows himself to be captured in Afghanistan so he can really live it. So in many ways, it's, it's, it's a throwback to the faithful spy. And I think that's what people like about it in that it's, not, it's still Wells being undercover, but he has this wisdom and now he's, you know, he's older. He also has a family. He's got a daughter. Well, I'm giving one thing away to you, which is that he has a daughter, a young daughter in the new one. And he knows that, you know, he lost his relationship with his son. And so in the back of his mind is, is this going to cost me my relationship with my daughter? So this, you know, there is a bit of personal stakes for him in a way that there sometimes isn't. Um, but so, so, so he gets a clue and the, the clue is just that the guy in, in France who he's going after is, has a nickname, the Puma. And, uh, and you know how, and so they look. He and Schaefer, or Schaefer, he he tells Schaefer, and Schaefer looks through these terrorist databases. There's nothing with Puma. It doesn't doesn't make any sense to anybody. And the way it works, I'm not going to tell you, but I'm pretty pleased with that sort of particular solve. So you want I, so 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 he figures to himself, okay, there, it's not any databases. America doesn't know about it. Clearly, someone at ISIS knows about it. Right. Here's a guy we've isolated from ISIS who's who knows information. I'm going to figure out a way to build his trust. Yes. Yeah, so, the, so, and he does. This guy in this prison, this uh, this this prisoner who's being held, and the prisoner gives him a clue that this senior guy inside ISIS in Europe has a nickname, the Puma. See, you just got me to explain that much better than, than I did previously. <laughs> so, 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 did you start off thinking, okay, that's going to be sort of the 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 way I'm going to do this, or? Uh, so in the in my outline and I outline my books, I think it was actually the chicken, and it was because he owned like a little like a little chicken stand in in this you know Bonlu in this poor kind of French cool suburb, idea. and then it, was, it, it was okay, and I was like, you know, I can do better than that, and so let's I make I, him a lion, exactly. Let's make him the puma, and, ha- and so what is the puma? Well, you'll there's a there's a connection, um, and Wells figures it out, and ideally every and you know you know who's going back to Lee Child because Lee you know Lee in some ways is a model whether you know not that I I mean it's, I certainly would love to emulate his commercial success uh, he he always has a couple cool solves if you and he has a lot like he's the alt, he's the master of like the cool solve you know that that Reacher like Reacher comes across something and he tells the reader what Reacher's like trying to uncover and figure out and it's like can you solve this and then most of the time, it's it's tricky and Reacher solves it. I think that's a challenge because as a writer, you want to make sure the solve is hard for the reader to do. That's right. But at the same time, it seems like that's a tricky balance because it, you don't want to make it impossible because otherwise, how does Reacher do it or your character Right, and is it just, yeah, and if it's just something where it's basically unsolvable and then like Reacher like gets hit by lightning and figures that that's not fair either. No, but... but so but, like what's an example of a cool solve that works just in general? Uh... Funny, you don't have to give a specific example from a novel, but like, what's uh, what's a cool solve mean? Because because you're saying uh, basically a book is like almost a set of cool solves that get cooler and cooler. <laughs> so I mean, this is not exactly a solve; it's a twist. But uh, you know, oh here here's one. Okay, in Gone Girl, all the like things that amazing Amy uh, does for Nick. Those puzzles she creates for me. It's explicit. She's like, she's tricking him. Um, and and Gillian Flynn, I mean, Gown Girl's an amazing book in a lot of ways, but it's Gill, Gillian Flynn tells you what he's thinking about, what Nick is thinking about. She doesn't really withhold information. Nick is confused too. And then what he realizes is that Amy 
is playing with him and trying to lure him into this murder charge. And, and does the do, is there any chance for the reader to figure it out before Nick? I mean, other than guessing. So, so he so then once Nick figures out that this is designed to do this to him, she the the games continue right because he, he's not he figures it out before he gets to the I think the final clue which is like the the father's the 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 locker or not the locker but like this the woodshed that the in the father's backyard the father's house. Um, that may see it may be a little bit unfair because it may be impossible for the reader to get ahead of that, mm. but it's still very cool. The clues are cool. The fact that it's sort of like a triple game is cool, and then ultimately, uh, the you know what she's trying to do is cool. I feel I feel like coming up with, uh, and I like this phrase "cool solve." I feel like it's it's too difficult in the sense that <laughs> if I can think of a cool puzzle slash solve, then anybody will be able to figure it out while I'm figuring it out. Here's a, here's a good one. Like if I'm the author. Uh, well, yes. I mean, here's it, in Pirates of the Caribbean. I haven't uh, seen it. The, v- the very first one. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the very first no, one? No, no, Okay, no. well, this is a spoiler. Jack, uh, Jack, uh, um, uh, Johnny Depp's character, is undead. So they're all fighting over this thing that will allow the undead to die, basically, to regain the mortality. And... Uh, you don't realize until about halfway through that he is undead too, and that's why he's chasing this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, again, okay. again, I'm not giving you good examples because those are twists. But do you see where I'm? It's, yeah. What you want is for the reader every once in a while to be like, "That's cool." What's a Jack Reacher cool solve? Because I sort of feel like he just busts it, through. He knows who the bad guy is. He busts through, knocks that guy out, and then there's there's often pu- sort of quasi number puzzles in mm-hmm. those books. I, I can't think of one off the top of yeah. my head. Um, oh, yeah. Or a John Grisham cool solve. Well, here's another one. Scott Turow, okay, Presumed Innocent. One okay. of the great commercial thrillers. Right. Um, I feel there's one cool solve in that, which uh, is, you know, the end. Y- yes, but leading up to that, the fact that the, uh, that he, that the, that he has had a vasectomy. Do you remember this? It's I, tricky. I so it's, it's, like, a, it's like a real, yeah, it's a long time ago. It's a pump. So she... The murder victim has an IUD, but she doesn't need an IUD for him because he's had a vasectomy and there's only one person in the world who would know that. And so if you can, he, the, 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 the protagonist puts all of that together and realizes who the killer must be because there's only one person in the world who would know that he's had the vasectomy. And so, so that information is available to you as the reader. And it's so, so, so you can get in front of that book if you're really smart and clever, but nobody does. Is that, are, yeah, I feel like we've now, like, I'm still not giving no, you no, exactly this, what I should but, be. But what's great about this is this shows how difficult it is to write a thriller. Like, because I think too many times the cool solve is not cool enough right. or it's impossible. So it seems like lightning has struck. Yes. So, so I think. You're able to pull it off, like Lee Child with Jack Reacher was able to pull it off. You know, James Patterson pulls it off. Yes, uh, John Grisham pulls it off, uh, but it's hard. Yes, and, and and so okay, you're beginning a book. Obviously, there's there's uh, the the there's two big problems that strikes me in the beginning of the book. One is the the a new set of bad guys with a new set of ways to destroy everything that is freedom and good and light and all that. And uh, and there's more. 
there, there's another personal personal issue John Wells has to solve. Should he stay in a relationship? How is he going to get along with his children or kid or whatever? Right. There's a new or how will he interact with the people who are above him in in the CIA or whatever? There's a new set of personal challenges for John Wells, and there's a new set of bad guys. Then you divide it up into submissions as we kind of develop the bad mission yes. in the background. And 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 you kind of get this intersection going, yes, um, which happens at the end, yes, because uh, he realizes through the submissions that it's all kind of pointing towards the big mission at the end, yes. Uh, but the but all the submissions involve uh, cool solves, ideally, ideally. I mean, and again, a cool solve in the new in the Deceivers, okay, in the new book, he winds up ultimately threatening, and th- th- so. He winds up getting information from a civilian by saying, you know, you better hope. And she's somebody who has reason to lie to him and she's in a lot of trouble. But he says, look, I know the people who are after you are, uh, or, or not after you, but the people you're afraid of. And I know why you're afraid of them. But the truth is you need to be more afraid of me. And and that's not a solve, okay? But it's like he's willing to threaten to kill a civilian, basically an innocent, if she will not give him what he needs. And so, and Wells is very reluctant to do things like that. But in this case, everything leads him into that. And maybe I feel through the series, he's been building up to that. So like, for instance, Secret Soldier, book five, maybe? Book five, yes. Um, He's after, he threatens in the same way. He said, he basically threatens in the same way, the drug dealer in Jamaica, but he justifies it saying this guy's a drug dealer. Well, he doesn't really. He just he's just violent with that guy. But but, but he just vices it to his partner, saying, "Look, I don't mind being violent with this, this guy." But you know what he does do in that book towards the end? He 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 says he's going to mock. He says he's going to carry out a mock execution, and it doesn't work. The guy refuses to break, and he then uh, uh, like he's totally ashamed. I mean, he's very ashamed of having done that in retrospect. And not because it doesn't work, but because he's like, I can't believe, you know, this is not who I am. Mm. Um, And so for Wells, there always is this tension between how far will he go, you know, in the service of what is a a good mission, right? I mean, he he is, in the Secret Soldier, he's trying to save the ambassador to the United States, right? And so, or the, the, the ambassador, the American ambassador to Saudi Arabia. That's obviously something worth doing. Is it worth putting a gun to somebody's head and threatening to kill them? And he, a couple of times over the years, his temper has run away with him and he's almost always regretted it. Hmm. So so you basically give him a set of skills, a set of weaknesses, like any superhero has some, like Superman has his kryptonite. Uh, and so again, you kind of have these this parallel structure going in the beginning of the outline, which is the bad guys who he is not connected to at all, at least in the beginning. And then the submissions that take him, uh, like I said, then there's the cool solves that while he deals with more and more personal issues, uh, what, and, and obviously your ability to kind of bring back the sub stories of the minor characters into the plot. I, 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 again, I don't think you come up with a minor character unless you go into their sub story, which yes. is really neat. I like it. You don't spend too much time. You don't spend too little time doing that. Um, what is the essence of getting the reader to turn a page? So, and there again, and I will say, you know, most commercial novels, one thing that they'll tell you, don't write backstory. Readers aren't interested in backstory. They want things to be moving ahead. They want chase. You know, they want uh, action. Um, they want cool solves. Um, 
I do a lot of backstory. I want you to know my characters. And so my feeling is if I can tell you an interesting story about this jihadi or about this minor character who, you know, is maybe somebody who ultimately is going to be used by a bad guy uh, or about the American ambassador who's going to be kidnapped by these people. If I can get you into their heads in an interesting way, you're going to read those pages. And then at some point, I'm going to have to explain to you why this person is important and what's happening and we'll and we will end that chapter on a note where you want to keep reading now like like what's an example why so, do i want to keep reading what was well an, a, a, so one thing structurally that i do do is that i almost always change point of views when i change chapters so mm. uh so i mean here's a very simple example you know in the secret soldier one of the chapters i think ends with the 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 uh ambassador you know his convoy has been attacked and a bag is pulled over his head right he's about to get dragged off well okay you're going to want to know what happens to him and you're going to have to read three chapters ahead to get to that point but when the next chapter starts and the point of view changes i find myself a little disappointed you because should, i want to keep but yeah that's right that's a you know the ultimate master of this is uh george R. R. martin in game of thrones mm -hmm. i don't know if you've read those books no. so he he always ends on a cliffhanger i i try to end my chapters on cliffhangers because i do think it's it's the that is again that's the one place where i will definitely acknowledge sort of like uh, this is a commercial trick and an important trick because if i end with this person in a place where you want to know what they do next or what happens to them next and you don't get to know immediately you kind of have to go through the next few pages or next hundred pages to get there george R. R. martin he will he will put a character in peril and it will literally be 400 pages before you find out what happens to that person. It's maddening. And in the meantime, there's been eight other characters put in peril. So it's like keep it's juggling balls. And that in and of itself, if done properly, is almost enough to get people reading to the last page. And how much do you cover that in the outline? And how much does it sort of come up while you're writing the book? Uh how much does it like in the outline, yeah, do you have the outline, all the cool I mean, side? Yeah. Solves? Well, do I you know who's the master of the cool solve? Uh, uh, Breaking Bad. That yeah. that so where mm. where Walter, you know, you see it as early as the first uh, season where he goes into the Tuco or whoever it is. He goes into their hideout, and you know the guy, he's got this. He's got nothing. He's got no weapon. They've searched him, but he's got glycerin or whatever material it is that he's made. Mm. And when the guy won't let him go or threatens to hurt him, he blows it up. Mm. Right. So that's like him using his chemistry. Now you're not going to know that as a as a viewer what he's done, but it's a very cool moment. Right, that's a very cool moment. So that's his best. That's the best example I can give you of a, of a. It's not a solve, right? But it's just a great surprise that that you're like as 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 the viewer or the reader. I just got outsmarted, but I think it's so cool what just happened. If that makes sense. Yeah. So so it, it, do do you outline those and well, you outline the cliffhangers those are those are hard to outline so i outline by uh, i and and i recommend outlines when people ask me i think it helps um i believe by the way does not outline now mm -hmm. the advantage of not outlining is you can be very fresh you surprise yourself with the twists um you know your characters are a little less programmed if you if you have the guts to do it and it works it can be really great i think the risk is you write yourself into some crazy corner and you either have to have something completely implausible happen or you have to spend 
uh, you have to toss out the last 10,000 words that you just wrote. Now, uh, writing is too hard for me. I do not want to toss out 10,000 words ever. Um, so, so I don't do that. I outline. And my outlines are usually 10 to 15 pages long. Each chapter is outlined, uh, not, you know, not in great detail. Ideally, I'll have some cool things in there. You know, it won't just be like, well, it goes to Saudi Arabia. You'd be like, you know, X, Y, and Z happens. And that gives me the confidence that I can actually finish the book. Now, usually, uh, there will be changes in the outline, from the outline to the book. Because as I'm writing, I'll say, you know what, that, that sounded kind of cool when I outlined it over, over one paragraph. But as I'm writing it, it's idiotic. Um, one of the things in the prisoner, the prisoner mainly is about a sarin gas attack that of someone inside the CIA, a mole, wants to, he wants to hurt people inside the agency. And he wants to smuggle sarin into the agency. And he realizes it's impossible. I can't do it. First of all, I can barely, I'm, I'm not even sure how I'm going to get this stuff into the United States. That's going to be hard, but getting it into the CIA is going to be impossible. And so the only person who I can kill with this stuff is myself. Now, how do I beat that? And he comes up with an idea, which I don't want to give away because it is a pretty cool idea, for how he's going to get the leaders of the CIA and other agencies and actually foreign leaders too into a single location that he's going to know ahead of time where he can, not he personally, but the the Islamic State can get the sarin into the vents of this building and it, and, will, and it will not be checked. And so how long did it come... For how long did it take you to come up with that idea? Like how long were you so thinking that about that? So that was me. You, I did. I did kind of have to beat my head against the wall for a couple of weeks. Okay, so you that. knew you had that problem, and you and you just went through solution after solution in your head. That's, that's I literally. I and I was like, could it be a hotel? That doesn't work. I literally was thinking about because Saren. The thing about Saren is, and this is a good thing. It's not like a biological weapon. It's not like a, a little speck can kill you. It's, you know, it has to be a measurable quantity. And if you're going to put it in vents and aerosolize it, it has to be, you know, by, there's a reason why there's warehouses of this stuff. It has to be multiple liters, right? Um, and so... And you, you do a ton of, by the I way, do, you do a ton of research. I do a ton of research on this stuff. I, as, as people ask me, like, could anybody actually use the materials in my book to make any of this stuff? No, but they could kill themselves trying. So I consider that a positive. Uh. Um, but so, so I was thinking like this guy, so now this guy's got 20 liters of sarin. Like how does he bring that into the CIA? Well, they're not idiots at the CIA. They, they probably are going to check your bag. Even if you're a CIA official, they're going to run it through a, you know, a, a, a magnometer, a, you know, a bag check. And you're going to, or and you're going to have to walk through. So you're not going to be able to just bring in this like random liquid, no matter, even if you're a senior person. And so that was what stuck me. And I was like, and then how does he get into the vent system? He's not an HVAC engineer. Like, does he actually know what he's doing? And how does he make sure, you know, the CIA, presumably, again, they're not idiots. Like, they've got some pretty sophisticated people watching their vents. Like, so how does all that work? And I was like, you know what? I can't outsmart the CIA on this. I better do something that is not at Langley if he's going to actually make use of this stuff. But, and that was a cool running into that problem and having to solve it was fun. So that that kind of stuff is fun. So what's what's when you're outlining and then writing, what's a rule you won't break because you know that will kind of make the story worse. What's a rule I won't break? Uh for instance, you won't go off on a tangent too far. Yes. You know, but what's another what's another like specific rule? So well, you, <laughs> yeah, you want to end chapters on cliffhangers. You uh, know, what's another You know, Wells should never kill a dog. <laughs> Or right. an animal. I mean, that's a that's just something you 
can't really get back from. Okay, but that's kind of like your, your character Bible. <laughs> yes. So, so you have that's a, basically the only thing he can't do. Right. Or he won't kill his son. Yeah, but you have a character Bible. Yes. So, I, uh, so, so what's, what's, what's a rule in telling the story? In telling the story. So Wells should be, I like to have him between every two and three chapters. So like Wells, then X, Wells, then X, then Y. If it's Wells, then X, then Y, then Z, back to Wells. Then you lose that may be a little. a little too much, unless those chapters are short. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the books generally have been about 40 to 50% Wells. I think there are people who would like to see a book that's all Wells. It's funny because people, people don't realize in some ways how little Wells is in there. Um, but if there were any less of him, I think it would be noticeable. So and, that's, a, that's a structural thing. And you say you've made potentially, uh, I don't want to call them mistakes, but compared to like, let's say a lead child, you have commercially, you've done things differently uh, that haven't had the results you would have liked. What do you, what do you mean by that? I, I mean, I, I don't know if they haven't had the results I would have liked. I, you write the book, you're right. My books have too much backstory. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have a simple enough through line from Wells to the bad guy. Uh, and their quests are not personal enough for Wells. Those three things, if, if somebody said to me, look, I'm going to, you, you are, you know, on a sentence by sentence basis, you are as good as anybody else, but you need to, I want to make you a, you know, million copy hardcover bestseller. Here's what you have to do to do it. Um, you know, would I be able to listen to that person enough to do it? I don't know, but I do know. Oh, and there's a fourth thing. And this one is probably the worst because it's the, it's, it's our, it's a, probably an artistic flaw for me too, which is that there aren't enough strong women in the books. Um, and that has become a bigger problem. I think even since I've started writing because, uh, women buy the majority of novels. Um, even in this genre, they, they, maybe it's 50, 50, but women have become much more clearly, uh, demanding of, having strong female characters or interesting female characters at the, you know, whether it's, you know, again, gone girl or, but the last few mega best-selling books have been by women with strong female characters at the center of them. And my universe is just a really male universe. It's not exactly a misogynist universe. I mean, it, it's, it's a very male universe. And Wells is a soldier. He's out in the field Dudo, you know, is a is a kind of a you know he's a tough guy. Schaefer's a guy like your your wife's a forensic psychiatrist. She must have like a ton of stories. You should write a uh, a, a super version well, of her. Well, that's the thing. If I were going to and I and I and I think I need to challenge myself and get a woman, a real woman in there who can either challenge Wells or just is in a, a new book, a new series. Um, the last woman who really stood up to Wells was in the very first few books, Jennifer Axley, yeah. his handler at the CIA. And they had a real relationship. And ultimately, she walked away from him because he couldn't get out of the field. And I will tell you, though, she really was in the books last in 2009. That's eight years ago. I get emails, not every day, but all the time from readers saying, where's Axley? I want her back. She was the only woman who stood up to Wells. Like, people miss her, and they miss having a strong woman. So why don't you solve these problems like don't do as much backstory uh have a better through line like maybe like somebody who used to work with in al-qaeda and uh i like writing the books that i like to write i don't in the, my books are more authentic because in most of the cases this isn't personal yeah. right and even you know think about these delta seal team six guys who've been talking you know yapping nonstop about having killed osama bin laden nobody's gone after their families for the most part this is not a personal game yeah and so that's real 
the backstory thing, I want you to know. I think my books, I like writing that backstory and I want you to know. I don't, I don't want to write 15 page, you know, fight sequences. It's not interesting to me. Right. So, and that may be, you know, that, 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 that the, do you the, think readers want that? I think some readers do. I think the uh, you know I think when people you know I get classified as sort of airplane genre fiction, and I'm a little too smart to be that, and I'm not smart enough to be literary fiction. I kind of stuck myself in the middle, which is so uh, so. I, I do think it's airplane. Uh, I mean, uh, airplane fiction makes it sound dumb. I think they're great for airplanes because they're page turners, well, and so you could read one cross country and coming back and. Uh, uh, yes, I, I, I mean, I, I think they are, but, but I definitely have missed out on some readers because of this stuff. And, but the, but the thing that I, that, and I'll defend myself on this as you hear, but I will not defend myself on not be, having figured out how to write a strong woman in these books. They both, be, she belongs in there, whoever she is, it's a weakness of mine. And I've, and I've kind of, and it's, and it's hurt me. Now, I, given your background, uh, you should write uh, a financial thriller series. There's not, there's not that many financial the, 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 thrillers out there. You want to talk about box office poison. There's a reason there's not that many of them out there. They oh, never sell. Really? Yeah, never. Like, I'm thinking of, like, Paul uh, Erdman from, like, the 70s or 80s. Uh, but maybe that's why it's been that long. Yeah, since I mean, people thrillers. have tried, you know, good writers have tried. Uh, um, uh, the last guy who tried was um, Robert, I'm putting in his last name, uh, Harris. Robert Harris, okay. who was very successful. Uh, British, and he wrote a book called The Fear Index about this sort of like supercomputer that manipulates the markets. And it's a supercomputer that manipulates the markets. It's like, nobody cares. Right. You know, nobody, it's, it's. I the, guess you make yeah. an interesting point. It's why, for instance, in the past few months, politics has superseded every other type of story, including financial stories in the news. Like every other news cycle is dead except for the political news cycle. People, it's hard to get people to care about the really rich people losing money, right? So unless unless it's somehow the bad guy is stealing from the little guy and you can dramatize that and make it exciting, it's, even then, it's like foreclosure is just not that exciting. So final thing is uh, the, the Faithful Spy, the first one, seems to me perfect for a movie. And I know you've had the discussions for movie rights. What What happened? So a long time ago, even before it came out, it was going to be a movie starring Keanu Reeves. Um, my brother said the cruelest thing anybody's ever said about any of the books, which was he said, uh, he said, you know, uh, John Wells has no inner life and Keanu doesn't either, so they're perfect together. Which is, by um, the way, not true about either character. Uh, there you go. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, that's what I said to him. But I had a couple. There's the whole internet meme of sad Keanu. Sad Keanu. <laughs> sad Wells. Um, and then it, would, it got into development hell. Classic Hollywood, I won't bore you, but it was bad. And a script didn't even get written. And uh, then Body of Lies, starring uh, DiCaprio and Russell Crowe came out. And that didn't do very well. And since then, it's been hard to get thrillers made. I mean, not thrillers, but spy thrillers. Um, but I would say, like, well, Showtime's a classic case where two there's two examples of undercover agents who converted to Islam that did well, like Sleeper Cell and Homeland. Sure. Um, the fact that Homeland has been very successful probably has, you know, hurt me a little bit too. If, uh, you, if you, you know, if you think about that's that's Although similar... it shows that this people want material for that. Yes. Um, but uh, but so, so since then, various people have popped up and um, 
you know, there's been efforts to get stuff made, but even series that have done sold multiple times what mine have sold, like uh, uh, Vince Flynn's books, which are or Brad Thor, you know, and these are more, they're a little bit more popcorny, they're a little more conservative, red meaty, um, have had a hard time getting made. Now, Vince, finally, somebody's making one of his books, but um, the appetite for realistic post 9-11 spy fiction on the big screen does not seem to be there uh, mm. for whatever reason. So, so uh, when you say they sell multiple times what you're a sell, what is, uh, you don't have to talk about your numbers or anything, but what's, what's a good selling book? Well, what's so, a good selling so the, the, the series, my series has sold a, a more than, it's sold like two and a half million in hardcover paperback audio over the last, you know, 10 years or so. O so over that's, the 11 books. Yeah, over the 11 books. So that, that's, a, that's a, you know, that's a very solid number. I mean, uh, look, any, any novel these days, if you get over 100,000 in hardcover audio, you know, ebook, uh, you're going to be satisfied with that. Uh, you know, the big ones, a million is a big hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a Gone Girl style hit where it's ten million. I mean that, but that's you know that's one book every three years or something. Mm -hmm. But but Grisham King, those guys, uh, you know, they're selling a million or Nora Roberts and maybe a million in paperback. You know, so so like Grisham today puts out a book, his fiftieth book or whatever, it'll sell like a million. Uh, it, you know, a million in hardcover, a million in paperback. I, I'm sort of making that number up, but like. It's in that ballpark. Um, and do you see book sales going down in general with the decline in bookstores? No, book sales are not going down. But unfortunately, what has happened and is really happening notably right now is that the average selling price is going way down on on the ebook side, especially. Mm. Amazon is putting tremendous pressure on the booksellers, and they have the ability to do it. Um, and so, the booksellers have really tried hard, the publishers, to keep the price of ebooks in that 10 to $15 range. But Amazon has so many levers now to force to, you know, there's, first of all, there's a tremendous number of books being self-published at $3 and under. There's ways that you can subscribe to Amazon. Uh, I think it's called Kindle Unlimited where you pay $9.99. You can get any book that's in their library that's in the Kindle Unlimited library for that month. I mean, uh, they also have their own publishing arms that they're publishing for like $5 a book. So, so the the pricing is getting is getting very complicated for publishers. I've been fortunate. I've my publishers always been very uh, good to me. We've had a good partnership, Putnam, over the years. Um, I want to do well for them, and I think I think I have. Um, and we'll just see what happens going forward. All right. Well, Alex Berenson, James, I, I highly recommend everybody check out the John Wells. Uh, series, your, your name, your, I'm going to just spell out your last name, B-E-R-E-N-S-O-N. Find you on Amazon. The books are great. They're page turners for me, and I love to read good quality fiction. These are great. So I, I enjoy them. Plus, they're they're kind of educational. Like, I learn all about what's going on in the Middle East through through these books. Well, well thank you. This has been fantastic. And, you know, I thought I was going to pass out because I gave this blood before just before I came in. So if I'm loopy at all, I'm blaming it on that. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less. And it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. 
And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.